Well, this morning it is uh, my pleasure to introduce Scott Phillips to you. Uh, some of you were asking, who's Scott Phillips? I, I, I want to know who he is. Uh, he's one of our own and uh, works with House of the Rock Ministries. And Scott, so delighted that you're here this morning. Come speak to us. Hey, well, good morning, everyone. It's good to be here. It's been a while. Um, Tim got desperate enough, so he asked me to speak again, so that's cool. Um, for those of you that are visiting uh, or are new here, um, I'm not here very often. I consider myself a professional church visitor. Uh, I uh, go all over the area and uh, speak as part of my uh, role at House on the Rock Family Ministries. We're a local ministry that seeks to build up and help families, seeking to minister to men, to parents, to, to marriages, and, and ultimately to churches. And so I, I go to all sorts of different churches throughout the year, and it's a lot of fun. I have to tell you, though, I go to a lot of churches, and I'll put our worship team up again. Well, we are very blessed <laughs> to have the worship team. Have. Trust me. Trust me. I sang the Lord of the Dance the other week, and uh, I am the Lord. I thought, oh, my word. Oh, my goodness. I thought it was 1985 again. It was awesome. It was really good. It was really good. So it is good to be here in many, many uh, senses of the word, and, uh, and uh, it's exciting. Uh, the the uh, sound people know how to handle me. Uh, the last church I was at, those people were cranking things, and people were turned down hearing aids and all that. It, it, it was good stuff. It was good stuff. Uh, so I love my job. I, I love what I do. I get to go around. You can be praying for me because I'm, this sort of kicks off probably the busiest speaking summer I've had in the, in the five years I've been with House on the Rock. Uh, next week I'll be at Speedwell Heights Brethren in Christ Church kicking off their family day. And then, uh, not this Thursday, but the next Thursday, for some reason I've been asked to speak at Pequa Valley's Baccalaureate. And so those kids have no idea what's in store for them. They've limited me to 20 minutes, which if you know me, I'm not done telling jokes for 20 minutes. So uh, I'm really kind of having to streamline what I have there. And uh, I'll be uh, over at Mill Creek Bible Church for a few weeks and then on and on throughout the summer. So it's exciting. It also is kind of daunting as, uh, as I go through it. But uh, I'm just so thankful for the opportunities that that God has given to me. Now before, as some of you know this, before I, I worked with House on the Rock, I was actually director of human resources for a company called Zook Molasses Company, which has plants in Honeybrook and Leola. And when I say I was director, <laughs> I was human resources for Zook Molasses Company. I, I did it all, hiring, firing, uh, discipline, all those sort of things. And so I got to interview so, so, so many interesting people uh, who came to apply uh, uh, at Zook Molasses Company. And when I first started, I was really new to the whole thing, so I did what I guess anyone would do. I got a couple books, and I went on some websites, and I got a list of about 20 common interview questions that I just had as my list that I, that I would ask people. And, and on every list I looked at, there was one, uh, there was always this question that, that stood out, and that is, where do you see yourself in five years? That that's a good question to ask somebody. And when you think about it, you think, first of all, the technology's not working right. And there it goes. Okay. And when you think about it, it is an interesting question. In fact, just for fun here, I'm going to stop talking for just a brief moment. I want you to think about, where do you see yourself in five years? No matter if you're 18 or 81, where do you see yourself in five years? Just take a few seconds to think about that. Okay, got it? 
That was easy, right? Got your whole life planned out, right? You're good to go. Now, there's no wrong answer here, but just for fun, how many people here, you thought about, you know what? I see myself in a very similar place. Not a whole lot's going to change over the next five years. A couple of us, okay, that's good. How many people say, I see me in a dramatically different place in life in five years? Okay? How many people, if they're honest, say, I have no idea where I'm going to be five years from now? Yeah, those are the honest people right there. Okay, good. Right. It's a good question to ask of ourselves, but it's also a very difficult one to answer, isn't it? And in fact, I actually stopped asking the question after a few months because really, in an interview setting, people just told me what they thought I wanted to hear. Oh, I'm going to be working here, working hard for you, Mr. Phil. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, sure you are, you know. But there was one guy in particular, I remember, I asked this question to, and he gave me like a 10-minute, like, play-by-play of his next five years. And it was amazing how detailed this guy had it. I mean, he was going to get engaged within the next six months. I don't think he was dating one anyone at the time, but he was going to get engaged in six months. Within a year, he's going to be married. In about two years, we're going to find that first house, and then we're going to have our, our first child, and we're going to move to this area. And in five years, I'll be working somewhere else. That's actually what he said. I had to give him credit for his honesty, right? And uh, and I, I didn't hire the guy, by the way, because um, he failed a drug test. But, that, you know, um, <laughs> he didn't have that planned out, I can tell you that. Uh, um, but but I, I thought to myself, after I was done with the interview, man, that guy thinks he's got it together, but where, where was God in all those plans? And now I realize it was an interview setting. That's not the appropriate time to bring up one's faith and things like that. But it made me think, man, that guy... <laughs> He's in for a dose of reality when it comes to these plans because we all know that things don't quite go the way we had planned, right? But as I look back, I'm just like that guy. I'm just like him in that I've got all these plans. I've got all these things I want to accomplish in the next weeks, months, years, and things like that. And, and do I stop, as I'm thinking of all these great plans, to think about God's sovereignty in my life? Do I take the time to acknowledge that ultimately, I'm not driving this bus. I'm just along for the ride. And I think if we're honest with ourselves, many of us who are believers tend to live our daily lives with little or no thought of God. Now, we may come here on Sunday mornings. We may even start our day with reading the Bible in our prayer time. But as we go through the daily lives, our commute to work, as we do laundry, as we clean the house, as we welcome the kids back off the bus, as we think about everything we need to get accomplished in the evening, do we really keep God and the fact that He reigns in our lives at the forefront of our thinking? I imagine if you're like me, you struggle with that. You struggle with that. This attitude or the, the, this issue of this ungodly attitude isn't new, of course. And in fact, it's the exact attitude that James is dealing with in his letter to these Jewish Christians who are living a sort of scattered into the area. 
And so what I would like to do, I'd like to invite you to turn to James chapter 4 as we talk about what I'm calling living as if God doesn't exist. Now, Joel, I think I can make this offer. I'm here enough to know that if you're here today and you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the pew in front of you. And of course, if you don't have a Bible at home, please feel free. That is our free gift to you to take that, take it home, read it, engage it. And if you're visiting for the first time today, we'll also give you a free iPad. Just see Joel for that. Um, uh, that's in the back, okay? But, but you can get that as well. No, but please do take that Bible. That is our gift to you. Uh, if you're looking for it, James is in the New Testament, and it's towards the back of the Bible. And we're going to look at a section in James chapter 4. Now, if your Bible happens to have section headings, uh, like the one that I'll be reading from, uh, it says boasting about tomorrow in the section heading. So James chapter 4, and we're going to be looking at verses 13 to 17. And James writes, Now listen, you who say today or tomorrow, we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business, and make money. Why, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast and brag, all such boasting is evil. Anyone then who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it, sins. Will you pray with me and for me? Heavenly Father, we pause now after the reading of your word, and I ask that if there's anything that I say here today that, that's just Scott, that, that you would somehow take that away. But if there's anything that I say that is from you, that it would remain locked in our hearts as we ponder your word here, Lord. We thank you for this opportunity now that we have to ponder the wisdom that James writes in these verses. Lord, I pray that you be, be with me, that you would study my voice, and that my words would be your words this morning. In your name, amen. Now, when we look at this passage, James 4, I first want to point out something kind of interesting. Now, if, you're, if you have an NIV Bible like I do, and I just read, the, the passage starts out with, now listen, you who say today or tomorrow, and, and it goes from there. But if you have a different version, perhaps the English Standard Version, the New American Standard, and a few others, it would say this, come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a place. Now, this is significant for James's readers. Because those readers would have this come now, that would have like perked their ears up. Because that is an Old Testament prophet way of saying, what I'm about to say is serious stuff. You need to pay attention. Come now. And it would sort of be like an Arvin actor. We would say, hey, come on. Come on. Let's get serious now. All right. Come on. Pay attention. And so James's readers, when he got, they got to this part, they would have always said, Ooh, come now. Ooh. This must be something important. And so it goes on and it talks about planning. And the issue here is not that the men made plans. That, that's not the issue. The issue is rather that their plans did not make any room for God. And they had no consideration for God whatsoever. James is not condemning these people for wanting to start a business 
or planning to go to a different city or even making a profit. That's not the issue. The issue is they're failing to recognize their utter dependence on God for this to happen. That is the attitude that they have. And what James does throughout his book is he takes the sort of practical problem and presents it to his readers and then gets into the heart issue that, that applies throughout, uh, throughout life, throughout our different areas of life. And so this heart issue here is that our plans don't acknowledge our dependence on God. And we do this as well. Consciously sometimes, perhaps, but often subconsciously, where we just make plans and really don't consider God's role in those plans whatsoever. Or consider that He may have different plans. Or consider that the plans may change and all those sort of things. And it's this attitude of ungodliness. Now, we don't go around, I mean, no one really claims, you know, sometimes I'm really godly, I'm really good at that. That's a spiritual gift of mine. No one says that. But we all think we're doing pretty good there, right? I mean, we're trying. We're trying. But often, we take on this attitude of ungodliness. And and Jerry Bridges, who, who wrote the book, Respectable Sins, I highly recommend it. Our small group went through it this year. He defines ungodliness this way. Living one's everyday life with little or no thought of God or God's will or of God's glory, or of one's dependence on God. Living one's everyday life with little or no thought of God, or God's will, or of God's glory, or of one's dependence on God. We rub shoulders with people like this every day, right? They're good people. They're polite. They're courteous. They're concerned about others. They do a good job. They're good people, and yet they give no thought to God in anything that they do. And we think, boy, I'm glad I'm not like them. But the fact of the matter is, we are. In fact, survey after survey, both sacred and secular, shows that there is very little difference, generally speaking, between the behavior and values of Christians and non-Christians. We like to think that we're godly people, but oftentimes we operate as if God doesn't exist, that He doesn't reign in our lives. And it's an issue. James is rebuking his readers for having this attitude of ungodliness. They derive joy from feeling like they're controlling their own destiny. And he sees this joy, and look again at the passage. What does he call it? As it is, you boast and brag, and all such boasting is inadvisable. Oh, wait, that's not what it says. All such boasting shouldn't happen. No, he says, all boasting is evil. Evil. As in evil, right? I mean, that is a strong word. It's evil, it's sin. And yet we live, and particularly here in Lancaster County, we live in such a culture that values self-reliance. That the answer to all of life's problems is just work harder or work longer. That, that to ask somebody for help is the... You've hit rock bottom if you have to ask somebody for help. Physically, emotionally, spiritually. Like that, oh boy, I'm glad I'm not them because I've got it together, right? 
And I value that. I take pride in that. And there are times in my own prideful attitude, I'll just speak for me, but basically my attitude says, Lord, I got this. I'm good. You go help the people that need you. I got this. And it's ungodly. It's sin. And it's an attitude that, you know, whenever someone speaks, hopefully they're speaking to themselves. I'm preaching to myself right now. I struggle with this. I like being in control. We all do. One of my favorite sayings in life is that the issue is never the issue. The issue is always control. And who has it and who wants it. And trust me, you think about situations at church, at home, at work, wherever, driving. The issue is never the issue. The issue is always control. And we in our humanness like to have control. And as believers, we are neglecting when we want that control to realize that God is in control. That He's driving the bus. And James, as we go through this passage here, points out some some of the foolishness of thinking this way. And now again, we don't go around thinking, man, we're fools, but but there's foolishness in having this attitude. And, and, And the first example is that life is complex. Verse 13, now listen, you who say today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business, and make money. Think of all the things that have to go right for that to actually happen. I mean, how many people here have started a business on their own? Did it go that easy? That first year you were making money hand over fist? No! You probably went deep into debt. It was probably years there were things that cropped up that you didn't realize. I mean, it's hard. And yet these men had this attitude of, look, all we're going to do is we're just going to go to another town, set up business, we're going to make money. We got it. We got this, God. And, and, and it's, life is more complex than that. Business is complex. Relationships are complex. Marriage is complex. Guys, how many times has your wife been in some sort of situation and you, you've reacted in a certain way and it went well and she loved you and you were a hunk of hunk of burning love and you're like, all right, I got this. And the next time she was in a similar situation, you're like, oh, I know the answer to this one. You do the exact same thing and it goes horribly. And she's like, why would you do that? And you're like, well, she's complex. She's also a woman, but she's complex. Men, as much as our culture likes to make us think that we're simple creatures, we're complex. Life is complex, and to just think, well, we're going to do this, this, and this, and it's all, it's just a done deal, is just sheer foolishness. That's what James tried to point out. Secondly, life is uncertain. Beginning in verse 14. Why, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. Isn't that the truth? And that's why I begin to see the foolishness of asking someone where they see themselves in five years. Who knows? That's the right answer, right? Man, it's, it's, it's ultimately not up to us. Because God's in control. I mean, let's say tomorrow, it's Memorial Day, and man, my plans are we're going to get up and we're going to do some mulching around the house and going to trim some bushes and all those sort of things, be outside, and then we're going to go down to my mom's for a picnic, and, and you know, it's all going to go well. The kids aren't going to fight at all. That's my plan. Uh, you know, man, can I guarantee you any of that's going to happen? No. I think it's going to happen. I hope that's what's happened. I'm planning for that to happen. But life's too uncertain. 
It's too uncertain. It's foolish to think otherwise. And then finally, life is brief. Verse 14 again. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. I don't need to camp out on this one too long, do I? In fact, if we went through the sanctuary, and, and I know stories here more than I know anywhere else, I imagine each one of us could give testimony to the fact that life is brief. And it's foolish to think otherwise. It's just foolish. But it's more than just foolish. Ungodliness is often an unseen sin. It's a respectable sin, as Bridges writes. Because it's a sin of omission. It's easy to point out sins that people commit. Ooh, they did that. That's bad. The sins that we don't do, or as a result of us not doing something, oh, well, that's much harder. That's easier to sort of sweep under the rug. That's easier to sort of keep at home and and, and not bring here, right? And it's interesting because James spent such a good deal of time in his book discussing sins that we commit, like favoritism, like evil talk, like infighting and slander. And then yet in verse 17, he says, anyone then who knows the good he ought to do and doesn't do it, sins. It's sin to have an ungodly attitude. i got to tell you, I don't like this. Because this reminds me of just how depraved I am and in need of a Savior. This reminds me that I'm not nearly as good a guy as I like to think I am. This isn't one of those fun passages that we go to. I wonder how many people growing up memorized James 4.17. (laughs) James is making clear that this is serious as any other sin out there. So our challenge in response to this is threefold. Number one, we need to grow in our awareness of God. We need to grow in our conscious awareness that every moment of our lives is lived in the presence of God. And that we are responsible to Him and utterly dependent on Him. And again, if you're like me, there's areas of your life that you sort of go through and you really don't think about the fact that God is sovereign and He reigns. For me, for the longest time, it was a softball field. And I'm glad none of you knew me back when I played softball down at the Buck because I was a raven lunatic. I was. I look back and I think, oh my goodness. I just... In my mind, God wasn't God when I was playing softball because that was just softball, right? It's not that big of a deal. It doesn't have to be softball. It could be at other hobbies. It could be at work. It could be at our homes. It could be while we're driving. It could be the shows that we watch. Do we think about God's sovereignty and His presence when we turn on the TV? Or when we go online? Kids, when we play our video games? Do we think about how God is, it, it's an outdated phrase anymore, but I used to tell when I spoke to teens, um, even MySpace is God's space. No one uses MySpace anymore, but it still kind of works, right? I mean, you know, God is sovereign on the internet. It's not this like barren wasteland where it's like, well, we can do anything we want over here because he doesn't reign. That's just physically in this world. No, he's sovereign there. He reigns. 
And so we need to grow in our awareness of that and in all that we do. We need to grow in our desire to please Him. Now, we need to understand, and some of you know I was a teacher for the blast, and I'm not nearly as exciting today as I am on those nights, but uh, one night I told the kids, there is nothing that you can do or not do that can make God love you any less than He does right now, because He loves you oh so much. And sometimes I think as adults we need to hear that as well. There's nothing we can do or not do that can cause God to love us any less than He already does. So our desire to please Him is not so that He loves us more. If that's why we're trying to please Him, that's a lost cause because He already loves us as much as He possibly could. Our desire to please Him is born instead out of our utter and complete thankfulness that we were lost but am now found. Our utter and complete thankfulness that God sent His only Son, Jesus, to die on the cross so that we might be with Him in heaven. That is why we want to please Him. That is why we do what we do. That is why we should want to serve. That is why when opportunities come up, we should be racing to sign up and say, yes, I want to do that. I want to serve in nursery. It's that exciting. I want to serve in the kids' program. I want to help with the meals. Whatever it is, because I cannot believe the fact that God loves me so much that He made a way so that I could be with Him in heaven because I am so depraved in my sin. I mean, we should just be excited how grateful we are and how we can't wait to please Him because of that. And then we need to glorify Him in the most ordinary activities of life. And this one may be the hardest one of all. It is hard to think about glorifying God when you are folding your child's underwear. It is. I've tried it. Trust me. It is difficult. Right? It is hard to think about I am glorifying God by mowing my lawn or by trimming my bushes or by paying my bills or whatever it may be. But the truth of the matter is we are. When we are taking care of our family, when we are taking care of our home, when we are being good stewards with God's money, when we are driving in a, in, a, in a safe and polite manner, when we're doing all these mundane things, we are bringing glory to Him. Because people will look at us and say, why is it that they do the things that they do? And we need to seek that and find that. And I have found that in my own life that when I do that, you know what? Those mundane, ordinary jobs don't seem so mundane and ordinary. There's times when I'm loading the dishwasher for what seems like the third time a day because my kids, if you have one drink, you can't rinse that cup out and use it again. You've got to get a new cup. And I think to myself, I should just be thankful that we have food to dirty dishes with. Right? And, and bringing glory to God for that. So in our road to godliness, I, I think we need to do a few things. I think, first of all, we need to correct our speech. And, and you know, James gives that instruction right here. He said, you know, instead you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. Now, we have those sort of Christian phrases that we, we use. Well, unless the Lord tarries you know, as my grandmother would say, or, you know, things like that, or, you know, if it's in God's will. And those are good things. Those are good things. But you know what? When do we use those phrases? When we're talking to other believers. What would it look like if we use those phrases when we're talking to our non-Christian friends or neighbors or co-workers? Wouldn't that sort of blow their minds? 
what are you talking about? If the Lord tarries, what does that even mean? What do you mean if, you know, hey, what are you doing this weekend? Well, we're hoping, you know, if God's will, we're going we're gonna to go away for the weekend. What? What? I mean, that could be a serious conversation starter. So, you know, I think we need to correct our speech a little bit and be more aware because, you know what, if we're saying it, we have to think it. And that's helping to direct our thoughts to God. But I don't think we can just end here because I think it can become mechanical. It's rote. It's just what we say in a situation so that we sort of cover ourselves and we look kind of godly, right? We need to go beyond that. I think we need to identify the areas of neglect in our lives. What are the areas in which we sort of operate without much thought to God? Whether it's the golf course, or the tree stand, or the scrapbooking weekend, or our commute, or when we turn on the TV to watch Ryan Howard strike out, whatever it may be. What are the areas of neglect in our lives? Where do we operate where, you know what, I can go an hour or two, I can go a whole day and I really never give a thought towards God when I'm doing this. We need to identify that and then say, okay, what can I do differently? How can I be more mindful of God in these areas of my life? We need to get into the Word. I keep coming back to 1 Corinthians 10.31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. All. All. Do it all for the glory of God. And what a great passage to memorize. How about Colossians 3.23? Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for men. That's a good one to know when you're on the job and you're really ready to yell at your boss. You know what? I'm really not working for him. I'm working for the Lord. And keeping that in mind, or Psalms 42, As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, O God. Oh my, if, if I could say that every day. <laughs> I'd say, man, as I go through my day, my soul pants for you, O Lord. I thirst for you. Throughout my day, to have that attitude. Oh, how much better life would be. James reminds us that our life is like a mist that appears and then vanishes. We, we have but a brief time here on this side of eternity. And some of you I know right now are more mindful of that than ever. We have but a brief time. I was just talking with Jan in front. I said, you know, I'm really not making a joke here. It just dawned on me in the past couple of months, my folks are getting old. Like, man, you think you have a long time, but it's, you know, heavens to Betsy, I'm getting old. I'm like 39 now. My word. Like, that's the, one foot in the grave, really, when you hit 39. You know, we have this brief time, and here's the bad news, and I want to close with this, bad news and good news. The bad news is our enemy constantly wants to drag our thoughts, our actions, and our behaviors away from God. That's when he's going to do his best work, right? Or his worst work, depending upon your perspective. You know, if Satan can get us to where we are not, where we're thinking about God two hours a week on Sunday mornings, and that's it, 
man, he's got us right where he wants us, right? Because he can start to really work us over. He does not want us to have an attitude of godliness. He deludes us into thinking that what is ultimately unimportant is important. Uh, back when I, you know, when I was playing softball, it was very popular to have, there was these t-shirts, maybe you've seen them, but it'd be any kind of hobby, but it would say, life is softball, or the rest are just details. And have big softball there. And it was like baseball, football. Was, that, that was the attitude. I had one of those shirts. I thought it was pretty cool because that sort of described my life. Oh my goodness. If that's our life, if, if we think of things like, like our hobbies or, 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 or our pastimes or the sports teams that we follow or the movies that we like, if we start to think that that's the most important thing in the world and the rest is just details, oh my, we are in a bad place. We are in a bad, bad place. And yet that's what Satan wants. He entices us with false promises of what will satisfy and fulfill us. And again, if we took the time, we could probably go around and I bet each of you would have testimony to how you were allured by the false promise of something that was going to fulfill you and found it wanting when you finally had it. Whether it's money, or it's power, or it's job security, or it's possessions, or whatever it may be. That's what he wants. He wants us to pursue those things instead of pursuing God. Because then he gets us right where he wants us. He encourages us to rely on ourselves. He's the one that says, you got this. You got this. You don't need God. You're good. You got this. That's what he wants because then he can separate us from not only God, but he can separate us from the body and say, hey, we're our own man. We're, We're good. And the reality of it is, and again, I've mentioned this before and I've been up here, but I'll mention it again. If you're like me, you don't like to think about things like spiritual warfare. I don't like to think about that. I don't like to think about the fact that Satan's after my kids. But the reality is, the Scriptures tell us that he is a lion ready to pounce and devour us. And that we are constantly under attack. That is our enemy. That is what he seeks to do in our lives. To disillusion. To entice us, to tempt us, to encourage us to just be our own person. That's the bad news. Here's the good news. God is still on the throne. Amen? That is the good news. I am so glad that I'm not in control of my life because that bus would have careened into a ditch a long time ago. But God is still on the throne. And when we turn our thoughts to Him every day, throughout the day, and recognize our utter and complete dependence on Him for everything, life becomes worth the living. When we keep God in our thoughts, in our minds, in our prayers, we can see through the lies. And that may be the only way that we can see through the lies. The lies of our culture, the lies of our media, the lies that Satan tells us, all of them, if we pursue God first and we pursue a godly attitude, we can see through the lies. 
we can resist the temptations. And we all have those areas of things that tempt us more than they tempt others. And it feels like, let's just give in. It's just too hard to resist. It's tiring. It's exhausting. It's depressing because, oh, here it is another day and I'm dealing with this temptation again. But if we pursue a godly attitude, we can resist the temptations and we can conquer sin. And we have to believe that. That no matter how powerful Satan is, that no matter how powerful a temptation is, that no matter how powerful a sin is, with God's help, we can conquer them. And live a life that is pleasing to Him. So my challenge to you and to me today as I bring this to a close is to resolve to be ever mindful that our God reigns in every area of our life. That as we go through our daily walk, as we leave here this this morning, as we get back to the work day for many of us on Tuesday, some of us are headed back to school, that we are ever mindful that God reigns no matter where we are, no matter what we do, and that no matter what we are planning, to remember that ultimately He is on the throne. Will you pray with me? And Father, I thank You again for this time. Lord, again, I pray that anything that I said here today that's just me, that You would somehow take that away, but that anything that I have said this morning that, that is from You, that it would just be seared unto our hearts that we would be ever mindful of your sovereignty, of your power, of your amazing grace, and how we are so dependent on you. Lord, and how utterly depraved each of us is, how utterly full of sin each of us are, and yet you love us so much. So much that you sent your only Son to die for our sins so that we might be with you in heaven someday. We thank you for that. Father, I pray for those here this morning that right now life is pretty complex and life is very uncertain and life may even seem very brief. And I pray that you have just a special blessing upon them, that you would reach out and let them feel your love and your compassion in just a very powerful way this morning. Father, if there's any here that have not yet accepted Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. Lord, my prayer is that they will become one step closer this morning as they seek you and they they seek your will for their lives. Lord, they would come an understanding of who Jesus is, how much he loves them, and what he can do for them, what he has done for them. Lord, that's our prayer this morning. We thank you for this time again in your name.